Welcome to Design for Voice. I'm your host, Jeremy Wilkin. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at ethics and voice and how can we think about bringing ethics to the table throughout our discussions and our development and design of voice experiences so that we consider all users and are being more mindful of what we build and how it impacts people. Today, I'm joined by Brooke Hawkins, who will be giving us more insight into this topic. Welcome to the show, Brooke. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Why don't you give us a bit of your background and how you got to get into ethics and and voice experiences? Sure. So for the majority of my career, I've been involved in the voice world and ecosystem. And prior to that, I volunteered for AmeriCorps. So um, during that year, I actually did a Google-sponsored program where I was teaching nonprofits how to use technology to scale their their work and, and do what they do better. Um, so kind of from the get-go, I've always been interested in the intersection of technology, but used for um, kind of like social good or community building purposes. Um, that's always kind of top of mind for me. Um, so after that year, I, I kind of dove in into the voice world, um, and I started working for a company based in Chicago called Emmy. Um, and there we were designing IVR calls, basically, um, but they were calling patients all across the country on behalf of their doctors or healthcare providers um, to remind people to get certain kinds of preventative healthcare appointments or collect data about their health, um, or sometimes after a serious hospital stay call them for sometimes up to 45 days to ask questions like a nurse would about how they were feeling and to remind them to take their medications, to remind them to do different self-care or you know, personal care things to, to keep them out of the hospital. Um, and during that time, I really got embedded in kind of like the, the human relationship between users and, and voices. So there we did a lot of research and, and studying basically about how patients interacted with an, a an artificial voice or a virtual assistant. Um, we designed a personality that was friendly and helpful, um, but authoritative, like a nurse. And we recorded with a real voice talent. So this, these calls sounded as human as possible, but ultimately were uh, an IVR call, so a, a, a computer. Um, and that really set, I would say, the foundation of my career in terms of seeing exactly how a voice and artificial personalities or voice interfaces could help and were revolutionary in that setting for, for users to get them to schedule appointments and created an atmosphere that wasn't judging and made people feel comfortable because ultimately they knew they were speaking with a computer, um, but also created this environment of warmth and trust um, and allowed people to really build relationships with the interface. Um, we even had some users that had received those 30 to 45 day calls say things like they felt that they were talking to their girlfriend or they would miss their girlfriend. Uh, so that was a really interesting way to, to start my Fourier voice. Um, but during that time, Google and Alexa all launched their smart speakers. Uh, so the industry was kind of busting uh, up and exploding into a more saturated voice ecosystem. Um, People with IVR backgrounds obviously knew how to design for voice, and that kind of made me want to to go see what else is out there. Um, So then I got a job at Nuance Communications. Um, I designed chatbots for different Fortune 500 companies um, and really got my feet and hands dirty with uh, designing natural language interfaces for for big companies. So seeing thousands and thousands of conversations come through and uh, what customers had to ask and making sure that we were optimizing a conversation to to always provide the correct answer for users. 
Um, so after a little bit there, uh, I relocated back to my home state of Michigan and most recently was working for a small company here designing um, an interactive virtual assistant at the retail shelf. Um, so kind of thinking about how voice can be useful outside of traditional contexts where we think of voice and actually embedding it into different physical experiences. Um yeah, so kind of all over the spectrum of voice, but I think ultimately along the way, I'm always thinking about how users are building relationships with voice and ultimately as companies or as individuals shaping those uh, experiences, what impact we're having on on users and how we're kind of shaping their worlds in return. I think with voice and, and you were alluding to it, like the power of voice to influence people and their behavior subconsciously because of the 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 medium essentially that there's a lot of information about how I'm speaking, what's the tone, what's the pace, what's the inflection yeah. and things like that, which are still quite actually far out of reach of computers from nailing all of those things, but maybe sooner than we realize. Yeah. Uh, but when you emulate that humans still receive those, those cues, even if the system isn't aware of those things. And even if it is aware of those things, you have to be careful um, how they're being utilized. So I think, that's a really interesting uh, set of experiences that especially the healthcare IVR system, I think we could go into that a little bit further, maybe sometime. But before we get too deep into a specific example, can we talk about ethics from a higher level with getting a basic understanding? What does the scope of ethics really include, especially when we look at the voice space? Sure. Yeah. For me as a designer, I, I don't know. I, I let ethics take over every single part of what I'm thinking about all the time. So sometimes it feels big, um, but I think other times it can be more actionable. Um, but in terms of how my job typically works working within a company, I would say the scope of ethics for me is kind of embedding the question of what means good for this user or for the users or the, for the people that I'm designing for um, in the context of the service that I'm providing them. Um, so definitely I, th I think a lot of us designers are, you know, good people and we always want to make sure that what we're designing is influencing people for the better. Um, I think some obvious aspects of ethics are things like, is this interface easy to use? Am I making sure that I'm getting people information in a, a succinct and easy and accessible way, not preventing them from getting important information or access to certain things because of roadblocks in that way? And I think a lot of us are embedded in that primarily through the principles of UX design. Mm -hmm. um, but I think where my questions get a little deeper and where I'm trying to kind of push the industry and also people that I work with is kind of thinking about, um, aside from the designs that we're creating, kind of the ecosystem that we're within um, and constantly kind of posing questions about what is the worst case scenario or kind of what is the most negative outcome of, of what we're creating um, and then kind of pushing against that. Um, so increasingly in my work, I'm finding that it's not just the role of the designer to ask those questions, but trying to involve higher up uh, and other kind of lateral teams with these questions. So things like sales or things like our business and um, project and product managers um, to essentially think critically about even how we're framing our product in terms of um, are we creating something that's actually useful to people? Is this infringing upon their access to things that may be more positive in some way, et cetera, et cetera. But basically kind of thinking about ethics as something the entire company and the product itself should be critically engaging with. 
I think that leads really well into the, to the next question. And this is probably the one that I've heard in relation to other similar topics. It's like, how do you even identify these types of ethical challenges or questions? And you mentioned it's the whole company should be responsible for it, but does somebody have to take the lead or how do you build that sense of responsibility across a whole company? Definitely. That's a very good question. I think a lot of designers in particular are trying to answer this question and think about how this could work. Um, yeah, I think definitely design can take a lead um, because we're close to users um, and people that are using our products to identify ethical challenges or to, to identify problems that people are having with our products. Um, but the further that I get in my design career, I'm finding that that potentially is is kind of late down the pipeline. At that point, um, designers are kind of seeing problems that are happening um, to users after a lot of decisions about what the product is or kind of the business need has been identified. Um, so I don't know. I, I guess I encourage uh, companies to hire designers much earlier in the process. I, I think at a lot of companies I've worked, uh, product decisions have been very tech and business-led. Um, mm. So we just encourage people to hire designers or, you know, customer experience people or, or kind of ethicists if they identify themselves that way uh, much earlier upstream before a product is actually launched and, and pushed out into the world rather than optimizing after it exists. Um, but I would also say, you know, I'm also trying to figure this out as I go. So I, I should plug, um, I'm working with Emerson Sklar and a bunch of other designers in the industry um, upcoming for Project Voice, the conference that's happening for the voice industry in January in, in Tennessee. Um, but we're working to kind of put together a position paper, what we're calling it, about um, kind of this like request for um, the industry as a whole to, to kind of grapple with ethics in, as individuals and as uh, you know companies and so forth um, and to kind of outline you know, what, that there's value in identifying these ethical challenges and that each of these different entities have some kind of responsibility. Um, so very early stages, but I think uh, it's just to say that a lot of designers are, are hungry for an answer to this question and some work is being done. So I will definitely continue to post about that as I uh, work more on that. Great. And um, where would people be able to follow that action activity? Sure. Definitely a project voice. So if anyone is attending that conference in January, uh, we'll be kind of presenting some of that work there. Um, but then also I'm always doing writing on my personal channel. So on my Twitter and, uh, it is definitely a good way to find uh, my information. I have links to this blog that I keep about ethics and voice. Uh, so you can find all of that there. Okay. I'll make sure to link those things in the show notes so everyone can, uh, easily access that information um, from the website. So I think you're right. And I've been looking at privacy, which is sort of a piece of the bigger ethical question with mm -hmm. a lot of people. And often the question is, okay, so we get so far down the road and it's this uh, checkbox. Like, uh, right. did I infringe on someone's privacy? Yes or no. Yep. And it's always very difficult to even address that after the product's developed. But if you start thinking about those questions very early on and having those questions debated throughout the organization, throughout the development of the cycle of the product, I think you get a much better idea of what it is. Um, Certainly. Mm. But that may mean restraining from building something. You may 
de- sure. decide that this could make us money, but we think it's in, in at least in an ethical gray zone or you know no go zone. So how do you justify that as a business or with stakeholders, even if it's something that users may want, but it has ethical repercussions? That's a really good question. So I guess you you could have varying answers to this question, depending on how radical the person you're asking this question would identify as. Um, So sometimes, you know, the simple answer to me is that I don't know. We live in kind of a capitalist environment and, you know, often business desires are like a, a return on investment speaks volumes over what an actual quality of life would mean for a, a person. Um, so obviously I think some people would say that's a problem um, and push against that. Um, but kind of thinking about the system that we're in um, and, and kind of, uh, knowing that companies ultimately need to make money and you know be fiscally viable, um, people that are working within that system need to kind of balance those limitations. So, how can we design something that's good, but also be good for business? Um, so, it's kind of a difficult middle place to be in. Um, but I think ultimately. Yeah, there are things that we can do as designers to kind of articulate that that value to to people who are perhaps more business minded or to or the, to ensure that the business is successful while also kind of meeting users' needs. Um, I often like to look at catastrophic examples to to kind of shock people into to understanding the value of thinking into ethical quandaries. Um, so kind of looking at different failures of other companies that have tried to set out to design something, but ultimately they weren't great for the consumers they were trying to meet. Um, and then showing kind of the negative flack they either received in the press or that resulted in their company folding. Um, so trying to connect in some way you know, these ethical dilemmas with an actual loss of, of revenue or like a, a loss in, in success for operating a business, I think speaks volumes to people. Um, ultimately, that's not the way I'd like to frame success for designing ethical experiences for users, because I think to me that matters more than being a fiscally viable company or creating a, you know, like a, a mm financially successful business. But, um, I think uh, while we're having those conversations, you know, we can frame them in this way in order to to have a seat at the table. And then ultimately I think when there are more ethicists at the table that are making these higher decisions, perhaps we can kind of, this is square one, perhaps we can ask more complicated and um, be able to articulate for, for ethical quandaries in a more um, nuanced way after we're kind of creating this link between the loss of revenue and these ethical quandaries. So I hope that answers the question. Sort of, yeah, it's a, it's yeah, a, think, yeah, that's a good in, avenue. The mm-hmm. applying external pressure or from, from an external example is, is a really good example. And what it does is brings the conversation. And in my mind, a lot of that is about the conversation. And mm-hmm. there's a couple of ways that you've mentioned that help drive that conversation. And it can be the designers that are pushing that. It could be the sales folks who are like, hey, we saw this fail over here. Yep. And let's mm-hmm. talk about this. Um, Definitely. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, we're still in the kind of early days of ethics where we need to kind of connect them in some ways to a loss of revenue or some kind of financial metric. And I don't think that will always be the case. I think as we see more and more of these quote unquote failures or more of these successes in terms of thinking about users and ethics, um, we'll, we'll get to move away from 
framing it as like a financial positive or, or something that is fiscally important to do and, and more toward like the essentialness of that question. I guess I've been operating with this assumption, but I think I want to put it out, make sure we clarify this for a moment. I, my assumption is that we can't imagine ethics as a binary type choice where we've either succeeded or failed, where sure. it's it's more of a continuum. Is that the right line of thinking? And what are the repercussions of that? I think so. I mean, ultimately, I think we're always learning more. I, I do believe that ultimately we launch things and we learn from them and, and failure is a type of feedback. So uh, there are definitely are things to be learned when you're launching something. And ultimately, you're going to learn a lot more about kind of failures that you've done after you've launched something. So I totally agree. Um, yeah, I think in terms of ethics and where I'm at thinking about this stuff today, I think just getting more diverse perspectives earlier on to prevent some of those low hanging fruit or kind of obvious, uh, ethical quandaries or problems is, is the best thing that we can do to prevent that now. Um, so that's definitely something that I advocate as well, um, getting diverse perspectives at the table when design decisions are being made, um, and definitely doing due diligence to ensure that we're thinking through as designers all of the negative consequences of what we're designing, um, or all of the potential quandaries of what we're designing to avoid as much of that stuff as possible. Um, but yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think we're it's not a binary world, and we're all going to make ethical mistakes. I, I think that's a part of being human. So uh, we, we can kind of create principles for ourselves to do better. Um, and, and I think that's important. Let's take a, a concrete example and just point out, obviously there's lots of ways to analyze this, but let's just take it from the example of a health voice app that would give you some basic information like WebMD or something of that nature to essentially give you that front line of, am I, is this a cold? Could this be something else? And mm -hmm. basic advice or information about what you might want to either follow up doing or maybe over-the-counter medicine, something like that. What are the potential things to consider in such an environment with either physical, emotional, or psychological outcomes that may result from using such a, a device? For sure. So I think as a roundtable of designers, if I work, were working on this, I, I would kind of start to point out ways that this interface could be helpful um, and then ways that ultimately this interface could go awry. So uh, unfortunately, my mind is going to the awry examples, and this is a lot like what I designed at Emmy. So this is kind of similar to the design process we would do there. Um, but ultimately, thinking about um, people talking to this nursing hotline in edge cases or situations where they have some sort of um, ailment or, or issue, and perhaps we're providing a wrong answer. Um, I would determine. I would call that an edge case. It's not a happy path. So determining kind of what that might look like if, if we did provide an incorrect answer and they perceive that as truth and then move forward with treatment that doesn't look great. Um, so that I would consider that an opportunity for our designers to think about content or ways to revise our suggestion or remind people to get a second opinion from a doctor or whatever it might be, provide like a, a, a meter that shows how confident we are with that assessment uh, mm -hmm. to give people a little bit of comfort. Um, but basically try to problem solve around something like that. 
Um, I think also, and this is similar to something that I designed at Emmy, but um, sometimes people are interacting with these hotlines or things like this because they don't have access to, to free and low cost healthcare um, in, in general, or don't have access to a doctor that they can, they can speak to. So perhaps they're interacting with this free um, nursing hotline because that is a replacement for that. Um, so definitely thinking as much as possible about ways we can um, kind of link people to resources in their area if it necessitates doing so. Um, so things like that. I think I would kind of, <laughs> those are two off the top of my head, but I think sitting in a round table with designers, I would kind of look at this nursing hotline and think about these kind of edge cases or customers that are people that are going to interact with this interface and, and perhaps not just receive a successful um response about what they're experiencing and then go on their way. But these kind of edge cases about what, what people might hit or what they might actually need aside from the basic service that we're providing and how we can infuse that into our content and our logic as much as possible. I really like, and, and you, you keep circling to it, the, the edge cases, the negative case, the, the non-happy path and what can go wrong. And I think mm-hmm. we, I'm in a design group and we often like to think about, all right, here's how we're going to delight our customer and make everybody happy. And it's going to be great. And we don't spend enough time saying, all right, when, when it all burns down, what are we left (laughs) with? Um, And where are they? What if in, in some cases you have to also think about the context, you know, it's one thing to build a little mobile app game and think about the ethics of that versus a health, which has, far more, um, potentially far more damaging (laughs) consequences. Although games can also become, folks have had issues of uh, addiction or, um, uh, there can be, um, mental side effects of of some games. And so it, it's not always like just healthcare and law related stuff is where we need to worry about ethics. It can actually bridge into any place, but uh, we definitely can think more about when everybody's in the wrong place, where, where are we then? And, and what do we do yeah. about it? Exactly. Yeah. I love what you just mentioned in terms of things that exist outside of like law or healthcare. And I'm increasingly thinking about, I'm a musician in my free time. So kind of thinking about the ways in general that we access music and, and art through voice devices um, and the algorithm ways that we receive this content. So we're kind of based on our interests or our likes or we're getting content delivered directly to us um and and kind of thinking about the the negative aspects of that as well there are consequences to you know our our we're receiving things that the algorithms know that we'll like and enjoy but perhaps that's reducing our access to different artists or to different types of art or different types of music that we naturally maybe would have discovered at our local record shop by building relationships with people but but now are kind of relying on our spotify weeklies to deliver us so mm-hmm. completely i completely agree i think there are kind of quandaries to thinking about like what are what communities are we are we kind of getting rid of when we're even doing something like designing for delight um, are, are the positives of the delight better than kind of the the subtracting of the other things and that's a really good example and that's one i'm actually struggling struggling with myself um i have younger children and they play music all the time through google and that's connected to a spotify account because i was tired of it playing disney music through my account and and (laughs) but then like it thinks in fact this week it still it gave me like 
three covers of the same Disney song in my Discover mm-hmm. Weekly Spotify. I was like, this is not quite what I want. But it, that's that's less of a problem as is that's going into the, the randomness of what's being played sometimes is out of my control and now is potentially right. being played uh, on a smart speaker. You know, I have the control set and everything, but my idea of what's appropriate and what automated systems idea of what's appropriate don't always match. Definitely. And I have less insight into how those decisions are made. Um, and so yep. we, fortunately we're at a point where we can keep good enough eye on, on it and, have some playlists and things that sort of curate a few songs, but occasionally I hear a song that I think this is a remake of some not quite good sounding <laughs> lyrics. Uh, maybe they soften it for kids, but I'm like, that's not quite what I would have played. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so it, it's around us if we just stop and look at it. And sometimes we already exactly. feel those problems, but we don't necessarily put them in the framework of an ethical question. We just think, Oh, this is really frustrating. How do I deal with this? But we can dig a little deeper and maybe that's going back to the question of how do we identify these ethical challenges? Look at the mm-hmm. things people want, look at the things that people are frustrated by. Um, those might be cues for something deeper. Totally. Yeah. I think um, I'm thinking increasingly about that. My last position that I was working for was actually at an advertising agency, helping um, companies design for voice um, and thinking about how to get basically their products and their branding out to, to consumers that are on voice. Um, and yeah, that's rife with those ethical things. So ultimately, um, yeah, there's a lot of delight in ordering things from Amazon or getting things quickly or doing online ordering or, you know, getting things quickly. But ultimately, I think brands are thinking about how to monetize those experiences. And we're kind of entering this new world where you say something like, I'd like laundry detergent. And certain brands will always show up first. Um and yeah, what does that mean when your world and those kind of mundane choices are already made for you uh, based on people at advertising agencies or people within these brands? So, yeah, I think it definitely talking about the kind of the health and, you know, th- these like meaty ethical questions are really good. But yeah, I think we're kind of getting into this ethereal world where we're, yeah, even the simplest mundane choices are, are sort of starting to be made for us. And um, yeah, I'm trying to think about what that future looks like. Uh, Maybe I want to make my mundane choices. Maybe I want to select what laundry detergent I want. Uh, maybe there's a consequence to that. So, um, yeah, there, it's an infinite world of ethical questions for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I we could go on and on, I'm sure. Um, but we're getting close to the end here. So I wanted to throw out one more topic real fast and get your thoughts on a little bit more tactical for folks who are building apps for like, Google and Alexa, and they have only so much realm that they can control, right? They're still the base platform that they can't control, but then they have their surface area that they can manage. So based on your experience, what are some things that people should be considering building these voice experiences on top of those platforms? What kinds of things can they control and what should they be thinking about? Well, ultimately, I think as a designer, you're still creating some kind of, I mean, the way that these experiences have been designed, you're still creating this little experience within a larger platform. Um, So there are definitely things like making sure people understand uh, where their data is going or what happens to, to, yeah, their information when they're interacting with your app or skill. Um, So I think those are good things for designers to have covered in their little experience. Um, But ultimately you can kind of create this little utopic world within your skill or app. So um, being very clear with your, your 
people that you're interacting with through content, um, allowing people to, to see a little bit of transparency with the decisions or the um, kind of behind the scenes algorithms that you're probably making about what kind of information or content to deliver them. Um, I think transparency and, and information through content as much as possible is, is pretty powerful. So I think designers and developers can do a lot in that way. Um, and then ultimately, yeah, I, I, I think just making sure that ethics is a part of, of your design and development and product process. Um, so as you're developing your voice experience, um, whether it's a team of one or a team of hundreds, um, just make those ethical questions a part of your measurement and uh, design processes. So um, obviously, before you launch something, try your best to, to ask these kind of hard-hitting questions about negative ways people could um, be impacted by your designs. And then once you do launch, kind of create frameworks for yourself to, to measure and, and to explore the ways people are interacting with your experience um, to be sure that you can optimize and make it better for them over time. Um, I think it could be really, really radical as well to create some kind of feedback loop from your users back to you and allow them to give you know, perhaps longer form feedback about their experiences. So there's a lot you can do in terms of measurement to make sure that you're designing something that's ultimately good for the people you're trying to design for. Um, so yeah, it can be easy and it can be very difficult, but I think ultimately involves like listening and engaging with those ethical questions. I normally ask, a uh a recap question, like what's the top takeaway, but I think you just summarized a lot of it really, really well. So I think I'm going to leave it with that, which is great. Um, yeah, bring it into your process. That seems simple, um, overarching advice, but it's, it's, it's more effort than we've been putting into it. And Mm -hmm. it's about bringing it into not just the checklist at the end, but the foundation, uh, as you've mentioned in several mm-hmm. different ways and thinking about those edge cases, the negatives. So um, yeah. let's wrap it up here. This is the endpoint detection part of the show where we wrap things up. So I asked a couple of questions of all my guests just to learn a bit more about you and some things that uh, can help other people. So first question, what's an interesting voice app or experience that you've seen recently? Yeah. So I, it's not specifically a voice app or experience, but I think it's related to a lot of the things that we're talking about in terms of these micro interactions shaping our world of, of listening. Um, but I recently saw that Spotify was actually doing a campaign where if you joined premium, you'd get a free Google home mini, um, to, as a, you know, the promotion to get you to listen to Spotify and ultimately have a smart speaker in your home. Mm-hmm. Um, and things like that, I think are so interesting, kind of the different inroads that people are getting into the voice ecosystem. And in particular, um, kind of starting your voice journey with, a, you know, a paid music experience like Spotify and how that might shape the way you interact with voice or the way you explore artists or their things like that. So, um, yeah, less so, I guess, an interesting voice app or experience, but uh, kind of an interesting like corporate voice sponsorship. And ultimately, I think we'll have a lot of impacts on how people are interacting or, or experiencing voice. So, um yeah, I think things like that are interesting, especially coming from the advertising world. Um, there are forces shaping our experiences um, because mm. voice is interfaceless. It feels like we have access to everything. But I think partnerships like this kind of elucidate the fact that, um, yeah, there, there actually is a lot of shaping or interface happening behind the scenes. And it's important to kind of tune yourself to that. Very true. Yeah, I see those things as well. And I think 
a handful of my devices have come from those kinds of things. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I've gotten one from Spotify for that very yeah. reason. Because um, if you're already a subscriber, you can still get one. So cool. keep an eye out if you're a Spotify person and uh, maybe you get a free mini. So following up then, what are some resources you would recommend to somebody who would like to learn more about uh, design for voice or ethics? Actually, let's include ethics as well. Sure. Yeah, I would be remiss if I didn't point out. So I designed a course for Career Foundry a couple of years ago on the intro for VUI design. So if you're looking for a learning environment that's more structured and it's a paid experience, um, I would definitely recommend that course. Um, I worked really hard with the, the course designer our co-course designer there to infuse a lot of ethical principles and and really get people grounded in questions of ethics in that course. So I think that's a good starting point. Um, I know that Twitter isn't the most enjoyable place for everyone to be on, but I've really learned a lot from being there. Um, So unfortunately I have to recommend Twitter as an ecosystem Um, and just following voice designers in the industry there, you'll find a lot of people at different voice industry conferences and they'll talk about themselves and and their Twitter profiles. And I definitely recommend following them there. Um, You have access to all the world's current voice designers and you can ask them questions at any time. So you have to try to to do that. (laughs) Um, And then also Kathy Pearl at Google um, does a great job. Uh, I think both Amazon and Google, but Google has these kind of voice videos or voice how to, it's like a YouTube channel um, where they're explaining different principles of design. Um, So definitely check those out. I think they break down the principles of designing for voice in a really cool way. Um, And they're easy to watch because they're little fun videos. Um, Yeah. There's a lot of voice books, I think coming up in the industry in particular about ethics as well. Um, And I'm frustrated that I don't have a good list of those. So uh, after this episode, maybe I'll put together a tweet of good books that I recommend and people can find them there. I know of a one book, Future Ethics by Kenny Boyles, yeah. is um, really good. So yeah, he's great. I would definitely put that in my list. Yeah, I talk to him frequently. Actually, he's a, a really cool ethicist that I think is doing great work and always trying to find ways to to plug in together. So I, I keep tabs on his work for sure. <laughs> Great. And I'll link all of these things in the show notes so people can quickly find uh, these resources. And before we close the show, how can people learn more about you and your work? So specifically, what's your Twitter account and things like that? Sure. Um, So people can find me on social media and on LinkedIn. Um, My Twitter handle is Brooke B. Hawkins. um, And I think LinkedIn is the same. So Brooke B. Hawkins. Um, I do have a website where I not very well keep track of the projects that I'm working on. Uh, but it's brookhawkins.com. Um, and yeah, increasingly doing writing about ethics and, and stuff. So I would stay tuned to the, t- the Twitter account to there'll, there'll be more coming soon. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today. I, I would love to dig into this even further and I'm, I'm certain we'll have more shows on similar topics, but this was a really good overview. And I think we have a lot of actionable, thoughts to put into practice, especially design. But I want to make sure to emphasize that developers and project managers, anybody should be heeding these things as well and not just pushing it off to design. This is for everybody to take, Mm -hmm. uh, take note of and to take action with. Definitely. I would agree. (laughs) And as designers know that other people in the room want this too. So you're not alone or you don't need to have those times alone, frustrated, thinking you're the only ethicist in the room. Everybody wants to design good things. So more work can be done in groups. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Brooke. 
Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And if you liked the show, please rate us on your favorite podcast player. All of the show notes are available on designforvoice.com.